Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This weekend, the Newberger Museum of Art at the State University of New York's Purchase College opens Louise Fishman A Retrospective, the New York-based painter's first career-length survey. Louise Fishman began her career as an expressionist painter in the mid-1960s by both remaining true to abstract painting and by working to purge male influences from her work. Her oeuvre demonstrates an intense commitment to exploring the ways in which an abstract painter can engage with non-art histories, ideas, and experiences. The retrospective will be on view at the Newberger through July 31st. It was curated by Helene Posner. A companion exhibition at the Institute of Contemporary Art Philadelphia, Paper Louise Tiny Fishman Rock, opens on April 29th and runs through August 14th. It will spotlight Fishman's small-scale work and her sculpture. It was organized by Ingrid Schaffner. The catalog of both shows is forthcoming, but as of airtime, it has not been published. On the second segment, paintings conservator Luke Hogstede discusses his work on two Hieronymus Bosch triptychs. As you probably know, the Nordbrabant's Museum in Sertogenbosch is presenting a once-in-a-lifetime survey of Bosch's work. Thanks to the Getty Foundation, Hoogstede and the Bosch Conservation Team have created the first stage of BoschProject.org, a remarkable website that allows both specialists and the general public to examine high-resolution imagery of Bosch paintings on which the team has worked. It's amazing. But first, Louise Fishman, after the break. A Baroque masterpiece has joined the Getty Collection. Orazio Gentileschi's Danai depicts the moment Zeus descends as a shower of gold to impregnate the cloistered princess, who then gave birth to Perseus. Painted around 1621, it was part of a commission of three paintings depicting different scenes of women experiencing divine encounters drawn from Hebrew, Christian, and Greek theologies. Danai can now be seen with another member of the triad, Lot and his daughters, only at the Getty. For more information, visit getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents... Sculpted in Steel, a luxurious display of innovative, machine-inspired Art Deco style. Featuring 14 cars and three motorcycles, along with vintage images and videos from this iconic period, now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash sculptedinsteel for more. And we're back. Louise Fishman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. The first work in the show is from 1968. In the late 1960s, you, you somewhat famously sought to purge all that was rooted in male-dominated styles from your work. A retrospective like this is kind of a unique and special way a painter gets to look back at a career. Did you succeed in, in purging male-dominated styles from your work in that period? I think I did. I mean, I stopped painting entirely and I immersed myself in things that I previously would never have been interested in, like women's tasks, stitching and various things that I, that I, that seemed inappropriate. I mean, I, I was a pretty classically trained painter. So for me to give up on, well, Solowit and Al Held and Cezanne and Jackson Pollock and Franz Klein and uh, you know and and the Renaissance and so on. And when I, by the way, when I was studying art, there were no women that were even talked about in art history. So you know now there's sort of a resurgence of information about 
women that were back there painting and actually did some very beautiful paintings. But at the time, I was a complete loner as far as I knew. It didn't, you know, it didn't interest me. George O'Keefe didn't interest me. I didn't know about Agnes Martin at the time. It was pretty early on. And what I did is I, I had been doing these stained grid paintings and I began cutting them up and I did a variety of things with them. I stitched them back together in grids. I was thinking about the grid as it came off of weaving and women's work, basically. Of course, I was very involved before that with the grid through Saul LeWitt and Mondrian in some respects. And the grid has kind of stayed with me throughout my work. So but it was a different take on it. And I decided that anything that seemed to be coming from the male tradition that I was made of, I tried to get rid of. I want to come back to the grid in a moment. But before we, we get there, what was the toughest thing to, to purge, to, the toughest thing to toss? I guess I would have to say gesture and, you know, a painterliness, which... I have been very involved with since I began making art. The first painting in the show is from 1968. It's called In and Out. I've never seen it in person. We're taping before the show opens, obviously. And there is no hint of gesture in it, no hint of of any of the things you mentioned a moment ago. Perspective, figure, is that a good example of something that's still a painting, but that is as purged as you could make it? No. No, the purging, actually, that painting from 68 and the paintings before that, which were grids, this was a departure. This was totally male. It came out of, that painting came out of a show I saw that had Al Held's first minimalist paintings at the Art Institute of Chicago. It was when I was still in graduate school. I didn't paint it in graduate school. I got out of school at 65, but I was, I had access to, I was in a Champaign-Urbana, and so I would hear about things that were going on during those years, but I didn't see much unless it was in Chicago. So I took, it was a big show, and I, and I've always, I was always interested in Held and some other people that were in, I believe it was a group show, and I was used to his very passionate, sort of uh, heavily painted, expressionist looking paintings, and arrived, and there was this hard edge, a couple of hard edge paintings, and I was stunned by them. And when I went back, my last year in in graduate school, I remember making a painting, which doesn't exist anymore, but I, re- I had taken a photograph of it on the Illinois Central Railroad tracks, which is which next to the graduate studio. And the painting is really the subject from which this painting in 1968, painted in New York on Cooper Square, where I then lived, was was made. And it was, you know, the ideas were coming from that held period. So that was still about male work. The the movement that I got involved in, I was first involved in, in just this regular feminist group and learned about, you know, just had a real immersion in consciousness raising and, and then got involved in a women's group that were, were, we were all artists. And so that's when the subject was, came up about eliminating the male influence. 
Was there a reason in the early 70s that you let the men back in? That's an interesting question. I think what happened in 1979, I received the Guggenheim Fellowship, and my then a partner and I went to Italy. I hadn't been to Italy before. I hadn't done much traveling. I never have done that much traveling because when I had a break from my job, I always had to work. I would paint. You know, it was an occasion for me to do a lot of painting. So, And I didn't have any money, so I wasn't traveling. I went to Europe once before then. But this trip was a real immersion in northern Italian painting. And the, the surprise for me was seeing the Duccios, the Maesta series in Siena. And, I mean, the people I went to look at when I, you know, before I went on this trip, I wanted to see the Pieros and the Masaccios and, and the Giattos. And, you know, those were the people I was so excited about. And then the people I found there that that I was, you know, in addition to those were Duccio, which was a complete surprise. Ophrangelica at that monastery. I was knocked out by those paintings. But and and maybe in that group of paintings and in the Duccios, what I saw was this extraordinary delicacy about making the figure. And I didn't make figurative art after that, but I became interested in the intimacy of of a discovery in painting. Like I, when I looked at those duccios, I thought, well, this guy is trying to figure out how to make this arm, how to make things appear in space in a certain way. And this is about a narrative that I have never had as a Jew. And I don't make narratives exactly. I did once, but Victory Garden of the Amazon Queen was the first painting that I showed at the first Whitney Biennial that I was in. I showed that painting. It's not in the show, but an image of the work is in the forthcoming catalog. Yeah, but what interested me is, number one, the scale of these pieces, this reduced scale, and particularly in the in the Duccios. And it was almost like, I mean, and I did look at a lot of miniatures as well. And so when I came back, I, I came back and immediately went to the McDowell Colony for five weeks and I and I made these tiny little canvases to take with me because I decided I wanted to really see what it would be. I mean, these are smaller than the Duccios, as it turns out, but they were little canvases that would make it easy for me to bring them back to the city once I finished. And I I did actually. There was there were one or two that were based on paintings I'd seen. One was called Saint Peter Fishing, and I think that was from a Masaccio painting a detail of a Masaccio. I'm not positive, but there's that. And they weren't figurative, but they had some reminiscence of the, of those Italian paintings. But the thing that came up, in addition to the things I've already mentioned, was the hand, using the hand as a tool to make a mark, to make a natural mark. And so I I kind of reintroduced myself to drawing. Let's go back to 1973. You made a series of paintings that have become known as the angry paintings. They were probably almost immediately known as the angry paintings because they all have the word angry written on them along with a name or a word. And I'm curious about what prompted them. And I don't mean the anger, but I mean 
because I, I think anybody who knows feminist history and especially the challenges of being a lesbian in the Lavender Menace years gets that. I mean, the text, what prompts, if anything, or gives you permission to, or whatever the right phrase is, you to, you know, what, what, what led you using text as not just something on a painting, but as kind of the, the meat and potatoes, yeah. I got into the Whitney Biennial in 1973, I think. It's the first Whitney Biennial that I got into. And it was with a little painting called Victory Garden of the Amazon Queen, that little, it's a little quartet of unstretched paintings on linen. And it had a little narrative. I mean, it's not a real narrative, but it was like a fake story, like a cartoon story. And the painting got into the Whitney Biennial, and I was very excited. But the longer I, and I was in my studio, and the longer I was in my studio, the angrier I got. And it, and it was because, number one, how long it took me to get to that place where I was finally having a painting. Let's see, 1973, I don't know how, I was born in 39, so. 34. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, an, an old person. And maybe just a quick moment of context. Marsha Tucker curated that show, and you had already known her for several years, and she hadn't put you in her first Whitney Biennial. Right, 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 right. She'd been in the studio, and she left. And then and she. I think she decided, even before she saw that painting, that she wanted something of mine and saw that painting and said, yeah, I want that one. And she hung it next to a Kenneth Nolan painting that was the biggest longest horizontal painting I think I've ever seen <laughs> and my little painting and I thought oh no but my painting stood up it was like people came and looked at it <laughs> I was very excited about that but what happened is a number of things I haven't mentioned that my mother and my father's sister my aunt were both painters and my mother had a terrible time with my being and having decided to be a painter she would have liked for me to be anything but a painter, as that's what she did. My aunt, on the other hand, was very excited about it. She encouraged me. She taught me. My my mother, it was, you know, my mother was a housewife. My aunt had a professional career in the arts. And my mother, even though she did show here and there in Philadelphia and then in Florida, you know, there I was. I went to art school. She didn't. I got to show my work. I went to New York. She didn't. And, and meanwhile, meanwhile, your aunt is a groovy lady who I think you have described once or twice as the first woman in Philadelphia to wear pants. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And she was terrific. I mean, she unfortunately she had a horrible death. She was became an alcoholic. I mean, it was just not a time for women to make art and and survive very well. I mean, she wasn't in New York. She was in Philadelphia, a small town, really. And she said to me, that was my mistake, Louise. Get yourself to New York. And I'd already decided I was going to New York. She was, I've said this before, but she did not believe in abstraction. She hated Jackson Pollock, who she had been in a class with, with Sequeiros. She studied with Sequeiros the same time he did, and she only complained about him. Oh, he was a, he's not such an important artist. He stole, he used the enamels because Sequeiros used them and he, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And I just kept my mouth shut because I didn't want to argue with my aunt. She was a formidable woman. And my aunt 
you know, in in the six maybe sixty nine died a horrible death, uh, just stopped eating and was neglected by her husband. And I ended up taking care of her, taking to the hospital and watching her die. It was really hard. And I had nightmares for years. I won't go into the nightmares, but nightmares about my being an artist and what happened to her. And I was terrified about it. It was frightening, the idea what could happen to me if I really pushed at it. So I, you know, and I have hidden most of my life. I used to hide in grade school. I used to hide behind the tallest kids so no one would pick on me. No one would call on me. (laughs) And so having this painting in the Whitney, which to me was like a real success, uh, a symptom of success, suddenly made me furious that that it was so hard. I was angry at my mother. I was angry at everybody. And I was trying to paint, and I couldn't. And I walked in, took a big piece of paper, put it up on the wall of this studio that I had, and I wrote, Angry Louise. (laughs) And I looked at it, and it scared me. And I turned it around. It was acrylic. So it dried fast enough. I turned it around and pinned it on the wall back you know, face to the wall and left and then came in the next day, turned it around. And I realized that seeing my name and the word angry in the same, on the same paper was scary. And it brought all kinds of things to the surface. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make one for, and then I made one for the woman I was living with, angry Esther, who is a very, was a very angry woman. And then for all the women in my group, I was in that woman's group at the time. And then for women outside of the group, my mother, my aunt, Razel, and I expanded it to include, well, T. Grace Atkinson, who was a, 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 a voice of the movement that was brilliant. She was brilliant and I didn't realize, but she was the first director of the ICA in Philadelphia. So they're borrowing that painting for that show. Oh, good. She had the she she famously had the first Agnes Martin show, and and the 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 just almost unimaginable pain of having to deal with Clifford Still for the very first show. Oh, of, right, right, right. I remember of the museum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she was absolutely brilliant. I mean, the, I, everybody got really quiet when she spoke. I mean, a lot of people spoke. You know lectured and yelled and you know there were demonstrations and everything and and but she was such a wise i mean she was terrific did you show these paintings in 73 74 did they pretty much just stay with you and within your circle well my first intention was to give them to the people that i made them for because it was for them because i realized it was teaching me a lot to see my name and the word angry and so i gave one to esther i gave one to Alex Dobkin, and I'm really sorry I did in both cases. I decided to keep them together. I mean, Esther has doesn't really have a place for that painting anyway, so we we've just borrowed it from her. But it belongs to her. Alex's painting was destroyed in a flood in her house. Yeah, so that's the only painting that 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 isn't in the group. But then I went to women who were important to me. Jill Johnston, T. Grace, 
Marilyn Monroe, you know, and a whole slew of others. And then the, the last couple pieces were, one of them was a one panel that had four women in it. I forget exactly who they were, but they were like famous women. It was a famous angry. angry. Not that Marilyn wasn't famous and some others, but, and I, I did them on, when I lived on Mulberry and Canal, I had a loft there and I put them up and I hung them cheek to jowl, as you can, you know, I guess you can say from the floor to the ceiling of this place. And I invited Paula Cooper over who had come to see my work on various occasions and I said, Paula, I'm not sure. I said, this is an art, but I don't know what it is. And she said, I don't know what it is, but it is art. <laughs> She's a very smart woman. And there is an angry Paula. And there is an angry Paula, yeah. And so they did get shown. There was, I think they were shown in Chicago at some feminist show that was there and then maybe not the whole group but a group of them were selected and I think they were shown at in California at Women House, Women House or whatever it was called Women's Center I think they were shown there too and then I had a, a show at Tyler where which is one of the schools the school in Philadelphia yeah, yeah. and they, there was a show there they were about three or four shows in Philadelphia, one at Tyler Proper, one at Tyler's, I had a gallery on Walnut or Chestnut, I forget, and then there was a show at the Academy, and I had, you know, there were a number of shows in Philadelphia, and so the one at Tyler showed a wall of those angry paintings, and they were in the wax show. That's where people really got to know about them, and then they were shown in Connie Butler's show at MoCA in the early aughts. Right, and then and then at PS1. I want to zip ahead to a painting from 1975-76, and obviously I haven't seen the show yet, but in the catalog it feels like a really transitional painting. It's an oil-on-paper work that is maybe the first painting in the show that doesn't have elements within a square or a rectangle or, or support but that completely fills the support and in, in, in a unified way. And it feels kind of like a Matisse open window collier type composition and, and source of light. And I wonder if that was a transitional painting or a key painting for you at the time. Well, it was one of a whole series of paintings that I did on paper, paintings on paper that were transitions in back to making oil on canvas paintings on stretch canvas. What is, a little history is I was doing these cut wood paintings. There's, I think there's one and some page, say page 38 and 39. There are two pieces that were pre, pre, just slightly predated the wood, cut wood paintings. And then on page 41 was a cut wood painting. It was still part of, it was still part of my decision not to, to, you know, to use any material that came to mind, anything that appealed to me. I started out using found, uh, found pieces of wood, and you know, first I had found a whole bunch of uh, masonite circles. So there were circle paintings. There's a couple of those, and a couple of paintings on paper using the circle, the same size circle, 
that was traced and then made a paint i made a you know a, a rectangular painting out of them but this one was one of a group i had gone to chicago to teach the art institute of chicago and instead of giving me a studio which they were supposed to do i think it was like a semester of teaching they gave they just gave me an apartment and so i had my jigsaw with me and the equipment that i would use to normally make those cut wood paintings and I couldn't do it, so I ordered a bunch of paper, and I started making what were initially uh, shapes within the rectangle that would be like like uh, drawings for paintings that I would make when I got back to the city. And what happened instead is they expanded into to the whole rectangle, and then I realized I was working again on a rectangle and the only difference was it wasn't on a a projected stretcher bar you know that comes off the wall like that and so the next step was going back to painting a painting on stretch canvas stretch linen so a little bit earlier you mentioned that late 70s trip to italy and being at the mcdowell colony in the summer of 1980 and working on a series of small paintings you in talking with Ingrid Schaffner for the catalog, said that it said that while at the McDowell Colony that summer, 1980, that that's when you first used a curved mark in your painting, first time since you 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 were an art student. Could you flush out what that mark, that curved mark, and its important was? Because there are curved shapes in earlier works, in the mid 70s, say, but at the same time, I can see in those works from the early 80s that big sweeping curves kind of on their own do come in. Yeah, I had been doing grid paintings, I think, before that. My memory may be a little off, but when I went to Italy, they were pretty uh, vertical, horizontal paintings. And then I realized that I I wasn't using a curve, a deliberate curve. The curve wasn't part of the construction. Structure of the painting. Right. Yeah, okay, I gotcha. So I started doing using those small, you know, small curves in the McDowell paintings. And then when I got back, I did a couple of paintings that involved curves. Oh, I had a show of those paintings. I don't think any of them are in this in the sh- in the catalog even. But they were it was playing around with that curve. Oh, oh yes, there are. Golem is a painting that's in the show that, yeah, there's a couple of them. A navigation where curves almost become architectonic in a curved way. Yeah, they're very supportive curves. You know, it's like close to um, a cubist support of 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 a mark as I could get. And that one McDowell, that was the most eccentric of the McDowell paintings. And it was one of the, actually, it wasn't a late one. It was in the, number four. But it you can see how it relates to these others. So this is the early 1980s, and we'll have images of of, of Gollum and navigation on, on the website. By the late 80s, you start using powerful, straight, architectonic black lines as structures or supports in your paintings. Paintings like Haggadah, Burnt Bridges, even Beast in the Jungle almost. Did those paintings where the black lines straighten and stiffen out come out of studio practice or something outside the studio that was going on in your life? 
Well, that, the first paintings were uh, from my trip to Auschwitz, and I had made a decision when I came back because I, first of all, when I came back, I was unable to work. I just felt like I couldn't paint again, and I made a couple of decisions, and one of them, and with help from friends, actually, this these this pocket of full of ashes that I brought the ashes and it was pebbles and soil and whatever. A friend of mine gave me a mortar and pestle and wax, a container of wax, and I ground the wax into this solution and added it to each of the paintings so that the group of paintings that are Remembrance and Renewal all had some of that solution in them. And that solution, which was like pebbly, irregular, uh, it was only a little bit, but what happened is the technique that I was using to paint involved sanding. And the sanding would create more of this kind of stubble in the painting. I mean, it's very, you can't, you can hardly notice it. You have to be up close to see it. But that kind of, I started making my own soil that went into the painting. I didn't realize it until much later. But I had made a decision when I started, when I decided to continue to make paintings with this material, that they had to have no embellishments whatsoever that these paintings were in, could only be involved with a, a, a rectangle and marks that were just about a construction of the simplest kind of painting. So the paintings you refer to, those early ones, Bitter Herb and Four Questions and Haggadah, they were all using that technique and Haggadah was the only one that I think had an irreg- had in a triangle and or an angle in it. It's one of my favorites, by the way. So and it took a while I mean the the period that period ended that remembrance and renewal group and but the paintings that I did afterward were very somber, like Dybbuk let me let me stop you for just a second. You mentioned that Haggadah is one of your favorites. Why? I feel like it is well, it, it you know aesthetically the most beautiful painting in the group. But it it actually was reminiscent of a group of paintings of mine that were destroyed accidentally. That were very important. I had them rolled up. There were paintings, acrylic paintings on canvas, and they were small pieces. Now I don't even remember when they were made, but I, I actually have slides of them. And they were rolled up, and they were on a loft above my painting area. And I had gone was living in the country with my partner, and her daughter was staying there, and she thought they belonged to her sister who was painting for a while and didn't want her paintings anymore. She'd given up. She was a terrible painter, actually. And she thought they were hers, and she destroyed them. She threw them away. And they were really important. But this one, this Haggadah, has a a reminiscence of of one of the paintings in that group. And I've always thought of, of trying to just copy the paintings again, but given my life lately i don't know if i'll ever have the time to do it but so it's partly that but also i think the surface is absolutely beautiful beautifully painted i remember looking at it when i was there last week and 
the quality of light in it and the sensitivity of everything. I mean, I was trying not to do anything that, it wasn't about making things aesthetically beautiful. It was just about making these paintings that had to do with that moment in Auschwitz. And, you know, didn't have, I didn't want it to refer to anything else but itself the simplest building blocks of painting and the building blocks are there but then there's this you know this these angles these tri- this shape and it does refer back to that one painting which I I'll have to dig up at the slide my guest is Louise Fishman we'll be right back after a break A new installation that's part of the Project Series, a forum for emerging artists, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Projects 102 presents the first solo New York Museum exhibition of artist Neil Balufa, whose work combines moving image mediums and sculpture to create immersive spaces that both obstruct and frame the visitor's viewing experience. Find out about this and more current and upcoming contemporary exhibitions at MoMA.org and plan your visit to the museum today. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the uncanny valley. And now back to my conversation with Louise Fishman. In the wake of the burning down of your studio in upstate New York in the early 90s, you zipped out to New Mexico and and spent some time with Agnes Martin. How did that come about? And maybe, and, and much more importantly, what did you get out of it? Oh, that was huge. What happened is that I, I got sick after the fire. I, well, about six months later, I, I developed chronic fatigue. And I was in terrible shape. And we, my partner and I bought a Dodge van and had somebody build a platform where I could sleep while, while she was driving because I had no energy. I mean, chronic fatigue, just, there's just no energy whatsoever. Plus, there's an extreme emotional vulnerability. So I was sobbing a lot. I couldn't sleep at night. I was a mess. So we got in the car and she drove and i look and i remember lying in this bed in the back looking out the window watching the road go by and we rented harmony hammond's studio which was in galisteo and i hadn't been out there ever um, this was the first my first introduction to the southwest so and i was doing some work and we were driving around and going on little trips to the various Native American sites and I got very involved in doing rubbings from stone I someone gave me rubbing stones the stones that were used to rub the black pottery and I started making drawings using graphite and these rubbing stones and anyway lots of interesting things were happening and uh, while I was there I realized that Agnes Martin lived down the road (laughs) And there in the, I mean, Betsy and I, my partner and I were, were driving, 
you know, maybe we went to Santa Fe or something, but I looked out and there was Agnes Martin walking from her house to her studio and I was like, oh my God. And so when we got back, I looked through Harmony's phone book and sure enough, Agnes's phone number was there because she had mentioned to me that Agnes needed help and the community helped her out and she was one of the people that would give her a hand when she needed help. And so I called her up and she invited um, us to come over to her house, which we did. I mean, actually, I waited a long time before I got up the nerve to call her. I had the same experience with Joan Mitchell. I wait. I was in Paris and I waited. I had her phone number. Someone said, call her up. You'd get along with her. And I waited until almost the last day we were there and sent her a postcard thinking she'd never get it in time. And damn, if she didn't call me at midnight that night. <laughs> and we ended up going out to Vitoya to see her. I met her in in, the, in Paris first. I went by myself. I, I mean, it was really funny. The whole thing was funny and very interesting. But the, But, you know, so I was very hesitant to impose on Agnes or to be in, sit in front of her. I mean, she was one of my idols at that point. And as was Joan Mitchell at, at an earlier point. So we went over to see her. And one of the things that, I mean, I'd always meditated. And um, after the fire, I got seriously involved in a Buddhist meditation. Different than what I had done before for 20 years, which was just TM, which helped me calm down enough to to do my shows and whatever else. But after the fire, I needed something much more spiritually uh, inventive so I could reinvent myself. And I you know, began to study this kind of meditation, went on long retreats and so on. And so when we went to Agnes's house, she made tea for us. And she sat in her rocking chair, which I'm sure you know about. And she said very little. And I was sitting there and I was looking at her and she looked at me. You know, she had these fabulously blue eyes, the bluest of blue, it seemed. And she didn't say anything. And I thought, she's meditating, which of course she did. And I didn't know that at the time, but I thought, well, I know how to meditate. So I just meditated. My eyes were open, but I was meditating there and sitting there. And it worked out really well. She came over and visited us once and, you know, just came over and made another, said, want to go to dinner or something. She liked going to this one place and having daiquiris. I never heard them pronounced like that. I think it was a diner in town, wasn't it? No, this was, no, it was down, it was at one of the... Oh, this is before she's in town. Yeah, this was, yeah, this was still in Galisteo and there was a restaurant that she liked that was one of the, a railroad stop away but we were driving so we drove her to this restaurant I, I think she had I don't know I think she liked to have roast beef and I can't remember what she ate but I definitely remember those daiquiris that she drank and then I went back and visited her by myself I was sitting there and and I remember she said what's that ring on your finger and it was a little wedding it was I wasn't married to Betsy but I we had exchanged like wedding bands was way before you could get married to a person of the same sex. And I said, well, that's a a wedding ring. And she said, "Uh uh-huh. She didn't say anything more. And then she said, well, you want to come to the studio? 
And I thought I was going to die. You betcha. (laughs) So we walked into her studio, and she pulled out a bunch of paintings to show me what she was working on. And then she brought out her drawings, and they were so beautiful. And I remember standing there and watching her just say a few things about these beautiful pencil drawings. They were, they were, cathedral was the subject kind of, I think I may have seen her once or twice after that, but we, you know, we went back and I didn't, I don't think I saw her again, but I, I understood something about making art in her studio while I was in her studio about about the the way meditation informed that work and the the way she made those lines and so when i came back to new york i started making these fold out books i bought these japanese fold out books that were made to go on they were like uh, not scrolls but like journeys when you went on a uh, You went on a trip to visit all the Buddhist sites, all the sites where the Buddha did this, and then the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, and then the Buddha met this one. And so you get a stamp for each site that you've been to, and they stamp this little book, each page of the book. And so what I did is I made a kind of, they were kind of little travelogues in a funny way, but I started doing these very simple grids Oh, and I, they're reprodu- there's a couple pages reproduced in the book. The next body of work I wanted to bring up is a work you make in that you kind of start in the early 2000s. There are paintings that have some Joaquin Torres Garcia in them, some late-ish de Kooning, and they look almost like an attempt to leave a strict rectilinear grid and instead embrace, I don't know, Tetris. <laughs> you know, kind of a less less rigid grid. And you bring the jewel-like colors with you, but you also bring these really strong, at least for a time, these strong black lines. And I wonder if there was a conscious turn or if these paintings evolved out of something. Well, I'm looking at a couple of them, and they do have, they are de Kooning-esque, but I'll tell you, they also came from 2001, 9-11. There aren't any that come di- directly from 2001. Well, actually... My City, the painting on the on the 127 from 2002, that's all about my, you know, New York. It's all about New York after 9-11. And a number of those paintings, there were others that aren't in the show, but and aren't in the catalog, but that were done. I mean, I, you know, I was in my studio. I went to my studio because I couldn't stay home. I was, you know, I live in Chelsea and work in Chelsea. My friend Donna Nelson was at, in her studio. She'd spent the night and saw it happening. And so I was in my studio for a while, and then I went upstairs, and the two of us watched as one of these, the second building collapsed. And it was a pretty horrific, intense thing to happen in the studio to be, I mean, it's, I'm not the only one. I know Susan Frakon was in her part, well, it's a, she had a kind of loft where she worked in, in the kitchen. She has a skylight, and I was visiting with her and having tea, and she said, I watched the planes fly over on their way to the Trade Center. 
just, you know, she could see them through the skylight. Unbelievable. She said, those planes are flying awfully low. But these pieces, for several years, came out of 9-11. I did mostly, in right in 2001, in the fall, did a lot of work on paper. I just did. And they were all about that experience of things falling from the sky. and I mean, they were very different. There is a real sense of, of structure and, I mean, even just falling in, in these, these early odds paintings. I mean, now that you describe it that way, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah. You know? I mean, there, it's, definitely, it's definitely in there. And it was there for a couple of years. And it was nice for me to have, to go into another place like a couple of years later to be using similar imagery but it were we were changed and it was no longer about that there's a there's a when you get into the mid aughts you know 2005ish there's a real horizontal flowing in those paintings as opposed to kind of the vertical thing of the of the paintings in in 2002 and 3 yeah yeah and and diagonals which there were so I want to ask about one of those diagonal paintings it's crossing the rubicon from 2012 and it it reads like a synthesization of the previous 10 years of your practice. It's as almost as much horizontal as it is vertical, flowing color, paint brushes, areas of paint that look like they've kind of been scratched or abraded. And there's a dominant black diagonal that moves from the center left up through the painting up toward the upper right. And that black line holds the painting together. How and why did you get to it? It it seems like a I don't know. It seems kind of brave. <laughs> yeah, no, it was unusual. I mean, that the course, it was part of a group of paintings that I did when I came back from Venice. You know, the architecture in Venice, you know, became a very important element for me. You know, I mean, just riding in Vaporettos and like. During many times during the day, looking at the architecture uh, we're passing. Other things, I mean, all the details in the streets and the, the boats, and you know, I think the color of this painting has a lot to do with those, those, you know, those poles where the, um, yeah, I forget what it's called, but actually, I went, we went to the factory where they actually made these boats and the these big oars that they used. They stood up on the side of the boat and pushed the boat along. But I think that it's connected to that. I mean, literally, it feels like places in Venice where you would see a group of those gondolas. But, you know, there's always a an easy explanation for me about what I was doing and what I was looking at. I don't plan my paintings, and I don't... You know, later I can look at and see, look at them and see connections. Like you know, there's a continuity in the work. It's not a, there's not an abrupt change. I mean, there was an abrupt change that happened in 2001, 9/11. That was very abrupt. But mostly they're not that abrupt. And and also there was there was an abrupt change uh, when I started stitching and cutting those paintings up. And maybe around the time of the studio fire. Yeah. Exactly. So there were a couple very crucial moments where everything was reinvented. It felt like I was reinventing. 
I want to close in a slightly unusual place, and that's by going into an interview you did with the Archives of American Art many years ago. Um, it's with Judith Olch Richards. And to tell this story, I will remind listeners that it used to be that interviews were recorded on actual physical tape. And so when an interviewer was interviewing somebody, the interview would have to be stopped so the tape could be switched. And you, in this oral history, were telling a story of how you were at at either Tyler or at the Philadelphia Museum of Art Museum School. And there was a there was a panel of that Philip Guston was on. And I'm going to quote you for a couple paragraphs and I'm going to stop where you stopped in in the interview and everybody will immediately want to know, will understand that I want to know what happens next. (laughs) Quote, and I was transfixed and transformed by this panel. I couldn't believe it. And I had seen, you know, Philip Guston paints a picture from the Art News series. So I knew him and his work. And of course, I knew the others and the others included Duchamp and Damos and Louise Nevelson. And I watched Guston. He had this cigarette, this really long ash on his cigarette. It was so elegant. And he said something that I never forgot. I didn't understand it, but I never forgot it. And I understand it now, of course. But he said, they asked him about his process. And he said, well, my task in the studio is to paint everyone out of the studio. And he said, and then my task is to paint myself out of the studio. And I thought, and that's where the interview cuts off. Well, that was the that was a very, very important statement for me to hear that you could paint yourself out, that, that that was the task was to paint the self out of the studio and be left with just a very open relationship that you have with these images that you're making and the whatever you come with, in other words, the self becomes. It, the self is the the self that brings ideas. You have to leave those at the door. You know, in in this Buddhist practice, I learned a lot about how the mind uh, influences everything. That it, and if you could just get it out of the way, there would be a flow of this lovely energy and and what's there naturally would come through. The self involves the criticism, the complexity of, uh, like, am I doing something wrong, or is this, you know, what will so-and-so think of this, that self, that that kind of quasi-critical, useless self. I mean, there's criticism, there's, there's enough critical faculty in a painter's life in the studio without adding that voice but there's a story that my buddhist teacher told when i was on retreat once to try to help you understand what the mind does and it's like can you imagine if you were at home and you finally have a weekend completely to yourself two days and you can do whatever you like and you don't have to see anybody, you can rest, you can sing, you can do whatever you want. The doorbell rings. This is describing the mind. This is sort of a, a, a parallel of what the mind does. The doorbell rings, and it's an old friend, and he comes in and he says, great, I've been looking forward to visiting with you. I thought I'd stay the weekend. And now there you are with the choice. You, and do you welcome him in? And the mind often welcomes that I, that person, that thing in. 
And can you say no? And end it. And so that's kind of like what you're, what you, you're, you're, it, I have a vision of myself in the studio with this oversized head that's bobbling on my neck. And I have to like, let I have to let it go in order to have this flow of energy and what's in my body. What's, I mean, it's not that the mind doesn't supply stuff, but it, what it additionally supplies is all this detritus, all this like stuff that's useless. And Gustin was saying you have to get past it. You have to get it. You have to let that go. Get the taint of self out of the studio. And I mean, you know, I know I would have liked to have talked to him more about that, but, I was not a. I mean, I was a freshman in art school, and I was so in awe of him. Well, Louise Fishman, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, you're welcome. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Ellipsis, on view April 15th through July 2nd. Ellipsis is a group exhibition that invites visitors to listen, look, touch, taste and pause, celebrating the senses and embracing a range of individual and collective experiences. Spanning artistic practices and eras, Ellipsis brings out unexpected variations in perception, interaction, and awareness, featuring works by Roman Ondak, Janet Cardiff, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Odilon Redon, John Bresland, Thilias Moss, and Claudia Rankine and John Lucas, in addition to a rotating selection of works by Doris Salcedo, Jean Arp, Ellsworth Kelly, Richard Serra, Getty Saboni, and Mark Rothko. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, paintings conservator Luke Hogstede. He's a participant in the Getty's Panel Paintings Initiative and is based at the Stitchting Restorati Atelier Limburg, better known as SRAL. We'll talk about two of the Hieronymus Bosch triptychs on which he's worked, including the triptych of St. Wilgefortis, also known as the triptych of St. Uncumber, and the Hermit Saints triptych. I strongly recommend that you take a look at boschproject.org and click on each triptych there for absolutely amazing images. You'll learn a lot, you'll understand what we're talking about a little bit better, and you'll have a heck of a lot of fun. Luke Hogstede, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. I'm glad to be there. So we're going to talk about two groups of Bosch panels on which you've worked. They're both documented on boschproject.org. We'll have links to that from manpodcast.com. First up is the Hermit Saints Triptych in Venice. All three panels of the piece are, of course, on oak. And I understand that none of the panels were in good condition, and the condition was so poor that the attribution to Bosch had come into some doubt. When you first saw them, what did you see and what needed to be done? As part of the uh, research for the Bosch Research and Conservation Project I do, I look at the overall condition of the of the panels, of the paintings, uh, but also look I look at the materials used, the layer build-up, the, the painting technique. And from that, actually, we immediately saw that these were, in fact, paintings by Hieronymus Bosch. But the, the painting technique and uh, much of the composition was indeed obscured by later additions, by overpaintings, by layers and layers of, of dirt and grime. And because of that, it was, well, more difficult to see what was already there. And on the other hand, uh, much of what was 
Virgin there was lost. I think it also, and this is something for Bosch paintings in general, he changed so much in his paintings that it's sometimes very difficult to tell what is original, what is a tradition of the artist or by his studio, a late tradition done by a restorer. Well, the Jerome in the Hermit Saints triptych might be a really good example of it. Jerome is the central panel in this grouping. What did Bosch or maybe somebody else uh, do that changed Jerome? Well, first of all, when you look at this, the, the, the robe of St. Jerome, for example, you see all these dark lines in it. And actually, you can very easily see the underdrawing shimmering through, but not just the underdrawing of this St. Jerome, but also of another composition. And then when we studied the painting with the stereo microscope and also compared the X-ray with the visible light images, she initially painted a much, much larger figure of, of St. Jerome, also with a much larger cross, leaving that in reserve. Actually, if you go on the Bosch Project.org website, you can see that uh, the, this a dark diagonal band of this cross. So he, we know he changed that and he changed the background, although it's less clear what exactly was changed. And I think we see this now because of all the changes over time, the, the aging changes, mainly aging changes. So, for example, in the, in the red robe, we see the, the clear visibility of the underdrawing. Because of the increased transparency of the red lake, the, the increased uh, the fading of the red lake, the increased transparency of the lead white undermodeling underneath, and I mentioned before the well relatively poor state of the paintings, and the in this case the abrasion of the of the paint also caused more of the underlying layers to become visible. In the Hermit Saints triptych, had it been over over the years significantly bent? And if so, how did how had that kind of impacted the painting? We don't know for sure how much it had actually warped, but the painting, the, well, actually, the both triptychs uh, were cradled in the past, in the in the nineteenth century. And what we see, what we saw when we examined the painting was the effect of the cradling. We saw that uh, the surface was undulating. So and there were there was active crack formation as well because of the cradle because it was blocked, and in in the past when when the, the cradle was applied we don't know for sure if it was done because the painting was warped, or if it was done as a preventive measure because it was it, it was thought that it would stabilize the panel. But in any case, what they what they did they uh, not only cradled their reverse of the central panel, but they also cradled the uh, reverse of the wings, which originally would have had uh, a painted composition there. So that has been lost completely. And during our examinations, we found remnants of ground and, uh, and paint layers. Actually, really, it's, it suggested a, a proper paint buildup. It was analyzed and it, was, it could easily be contemporary paint, original paint buildup. And that seems to be the most likely uh, explanation. And it points towards what could have been a grisaille on the closed triptych wings. And now we're only left with the, the open triptych. And it has been displayed flat for quite a long time until the 
well, our recent restoration of the of the triptychs, and which also included structural work. So we removed the 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 cradle, which was damaging the the painting. So would that have been an architectural grisaille scene on the back? Maybe we have no idea. No, but but yeah, there are there are many. Well, there are several examples. I think the uh, it could have been something like the 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 Last Judgment in 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 Bruges. And it also has a grisaille scene on the. Uh, I think the the amount the, the remnants we found were relatively limited, so we cannot really make up much of it. But it did suggest a a similar buildup as a grisaille would have. So just to kind of complete the story, I, you you built kind of an armature that would help the 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 panel survive. Maybe I'm not describing that very well, but you built a, a new cradle for it. Actually, well, no, not really. No, sorry. <laughs> we removed the cradle because it was damaging the panel. Often what you then need is to replace it by something else if the painting itself is not strong enough, not stable enough, or it needs some additional support. And in, in this case, we found that the, the paintings were relatively stable. They were The panels were in relatively good condition, considering what they... I think an interesting aspect of the treatment was that when we examined the, the painting, we found that in the central panel of the uh, St. Wilkofortis triptych, uh, at the top center and the bottom center, it had a thicker section at the edge. And this is where it would have been held into its original engaged frame. The other sections of the the edge around the panel, these were much thinner. And I think because of this, it would have enabled, originally it would have enabled the panel to move within its original engaged frame. It would have been able to respond to changes in in, in temperature and relative humidity. The cradle, however, and, the, and the, the, the metal framing elements restricted this movement and this caused a lot of damage. And what we did when we, after we removed the cradle, we wanted to, we thought of this system that Bosch had used or the panel he had used in, the, in this frame. Uh, we, we changed the framing in such a way that it, the, the, the panel is held somewhat similar to that, to how it was held originally. And and thus we did not need to so this it was so we could well, we can see it as a structural frame basically rather than a, a a proper frame and and this structural frame enabled us to omit an interfering secondary support and i was very happy that we were able to do this for this painting and, but it was also because the painting the panels themselves were relatively good still Let's switch to the other, uh, one of the other Venice triptychs, the, the triptych of St. Uncumber. You mentioned when we were talking about the Hermit Saints triptych that Bosch often changed things in his paintings and, and painted over things or moved things. What did he do on the two outermost panels of this triptych? Well, that was very fascinating. When we examined the painting, we found, actually this was discovered before, but we were able to find out much more about this, uh, that the wings originally had two large male donor figures in them. Very large, about half the height of those wings. Exactly, almost. yes. And these were painted out, overpainted. And 
the I think the interesting part from our research and and later on the uh, research and examinations we did at the at the during the conservation treatment of the triptych was that the overpaintings were done see or appear to have been done in Boss's studio and he completely overpainted the left wing except for this the the stone base or or yeah the stone base and then on the right wing he painted over the bottom half of the right wing whereas the top half what we see now is actually the original or the, the initial painting so he, he and this completely changed the, the composition we're also surprised because it, when you see the wings they don't hold up quite well to the central panel the central panel is actually much better it seems but then if you take this into account and it becomes much, I think, much clearer. Also, the the wings as they are now, they don't really support the 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 central panel in composition. They they seem to tell a totally different story, and indeed the landscapes don't line up in the background. <laughs> when you look at the X-ray of this painting, you can see that the horizon or the sky actually continues at the, on the same level. In all three panels, so even in the left wing, and it and originally you had two donors, both fed into a green landscape, and then in the in the right wing with a uh, with a sea area in the background. How could you tell that the changes made to the foreground of the two wings, the removal of the donors, and the painting over of other, you know, painting into the picture of other figures? How could you tell that was done in Bosch's studio? Well, this was a very difficult question indeed and it took us actually it was only during the during the restoration uh, campaign that we could properly examine the, the the painting the painted surface and we found that the old painting was not done in one but in in two phases so at first the donors were changed the donors themselves were changed the, the you can see that when you compare the infrared the x-radiograph and the visible light image um, on boschproject.org and you can see that the donors the head of the donors was changed so from a, a round head to a well to a different shape and also the, the donors themselves they were they were painted with less uh, slanting shoulders and elements in the background just above the the heads around the head of the head of the donors were changed and then in the second phase the donors were painted out. Now we don't know for what the reason was for this, but we do see that this was done with great respect for the original painting. Actually in many areas the the dark color of the donor's robe was reused in the in the final composition. And also several elements, the, the, the painting technique of several elements of this of the current composition, the overpainted or repainted composition are so good that they and are uh, done in in such a way that you can really see somebody was very intimate with the uh, techniques used in the in the workshop and uh, and the images they used and and combining all this information we we could only conclude that this was very likely done in the studio of Bosch you know, it's interesting to me to see all of these changes in the two outermost panels 
whereas in the central panel, almost almost nothing changed at all. It it does appear that way, but there are some changes. When the when the wings were overpainted, some parts of the central panel were altered as well to, I think, to get a better transition. So I think w when the several elements in the central panel were changed as well to get a better transition from the left wing to the to the central panel and to the right wing. So for example, the tree in the left, the large uh, hollow uh, tree in the left background, it was extended quite a bit. So all the foliage you see at the top left was added. Several um, several areas of the landscape were overpainted dark brown. So this reduced the, the greatly reduced the, the brightness of the landscape. So it, I think, right behind the cross. Yeah. Yes, behind the cross and below the cross as well. And I think this created a, a, a much better transition to the, to the left wing. The one other thing that it looked to me, and, and, and again, I'm a layman and I'm also looking at a computer screen, the changed was the gaze of the figure on the cross. It looked like in earlier versions, the figure on the cross, his eyes were looking heavenward, her, her eyes. Maybe not. Well, this this part of the um, of the of the triptych was overpainted quite a bit. Actually, it was this is a very interesting aspect of the of the treatment as well, because when we examined the painting, it was not quite clear who who the who this crucified saint was. And actually, in 1733, Zanetti describes this this saint. He he he. He, he doubts whether it's actually a male or a female saint. And we should note that Saint Encumber is a, is a female saint. Yes, or Saint Belgofortis. But to to make that a positive ID, the the saint would have to have a beard, and none were, none no beard was visible at the time. But it was interesting that when we looked at the, that's these area the, the the chin area with the microscope, you could see that things had been changed there. It did not look quite right, but because of the condition, it was not possible to tell whether there were remnants of a beard or not. And it was only during the the, the, the removal of varnishes, overpaints, and so on, that we found small remnants of a beard. And thus, the restoration enabled the identification of the of the saint as Wilke Fortis. At the moment, on Bosch Project, org. There are several paintings. There are uh, three groupings of paintings of, of Bosch paintings that are in Venice. I guess the site's going to change and expand sometime in May. Yes, that's correct. Uh, around the middle of May. Well, currently, the the, um, the BoschProject.org website functions as a pilot website, and at, in the middle of May, we'll add all the documentation we have made. So, all the photographs, all the viewers. Of all these, uh, of all the paintings, the all the all the micrographs I made uh, using the stereo microscope, and also all the documentation. So all the all the all the research reports will be become available online at that time. Well, I, I really like this idea because I I feel that our work is has laid a foundation. It's it's not the final answer, I think, but it it's it has laid the foundation for a much better discussion on. Bosch. What is Bosch? Uh, what did he paint? How did he paint? And uh, and I I hope that using all the do the documentation that we will make available, we can 
further our knowledge on the artist. You're going to launch a global wave of Bosch scholars. <laughs> <laughs> Luke Hogstede, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.